0: This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA convenes educators from all over the country. And Piper owners,
1: take a look at your wing spars.
0: Also, keep buying
1: those airplanes. The gamma numbers are looking good. And everyone is talking about a high-profile aircraft crash. All right, David, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk again.
0: From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. the 1056, turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, guys back. 30, with seven, your hosts. Ian Twombly and David Tulis. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, tell us about our
1: guest this week. Our first guest is Jamie Patterson Sims. She's from a flight school in Alaska. She won our uh, Excellence Award for being at the best flight school in the country. Awesome. Voted by her peers and her students. Yeah. And she's going to tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a woman in a man's world
0: interesting something yeah. that we probably don't you and i don't know a whole lot about
1: <laughs> she was great yes and i'm looking forward to our podcast listeners hearing all about it
0: awesome very cool all right let's get into the news Um, First, you just got back, so I'm going to let you talk about this one. Um, AOPA held its third annual high school symposium. That's right. Where we bring together uh, teachers from all over the country. We
1: did, Ian. We did. We brought together 255 uh, educators to our high school STEM aviation symposium. It was in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, and it was right next to American Airlines training facility and an air traffic control facility that we were able to tour both of those Oh, that's operations. cool. That's really neat. What was neat about that is that the uh, educators learned about what students could pursue as far as careers and career pathways, and having those two um, facilities right nearby really opened the eyes of a lot of people. Beyond just uh, being a pilot or being a mechanic or um, a flight attendant, there are tons and tons of jobs in the aviation industry, including retail, You know, you can buy electronics or food at at an airport and uh, computer and IT work to keep all this stuff running. Weather, folks that were in the ATC operation there um, were, you know, using weather prognostications to uh, determine whether flights were going to be. You know, routed, rerouted, uh, delayed, that kind of thing. And there's just really hundreds of opportunities in uh, the aviation industry for future jobs.
0: Yeah, these um, these events are pretty neat. I mean, this one, I think in your story, you said there were about 255 uh, people who came together. That's right. Yeah, and uh, in my experience, they, they seem to be a mix of, uh, let's call it people who know aviation, um, who know flying, who know the industry. Maybe they're teachers, maybe not, but they want to support it. And yeah. then some of them are, are just uh, teachers and they, they have are. no they're, sense of aviation they're whatsoever. They're just
1: te- teachers, and a lot of them are science teachers looking for a fun way to teach Science yeah. or you know engineering, mathematics, that kind of thing. And aviation is a perfect pathway for that because it keeps the kids engaged. And they, they're doing experiments. They're learning how to make wind tunnels with some of the AOPA curriculum that has been rolled out to 29 test schools, by yeah. the way. And that's available free. For ninth graders, yeah, and we'll roll it out, you know, next year in full. But uh, the test high schools have been having a great time with it, and the educators learned a lot about what things work, what things don't, how to encourage students, how to get people interested in aerospace. Which you know, the Boeing folks say that in the next twenty years, it's it's going to produce like six hundred and some odd thousand pilots, hundreds and thousands, six hundred and some odd thousand mechanics, eight hundred thousand flight crew personnel. And on and on. Yeah. You know, before we toured the air traffic control facility, I really didn't think too much about IT work. But you walk by banks and banks of computer screens, and, and then you realize, and someone was there working on them. So then you realize, oh, yeah, there's like a place for everyone there. Yeah. Really?
0: No, absolutely. Yeah. So as you mentioned, they um, they've AOPA has developed this curriculum, first starting with ninth grade. And uh, there are 29 test schools. Right. Um, they're scattered all around the country. Everything that, every range of school that you can imagine from you know, the private school with maybe somebody with some means and the kids going there to um, just your standard city, regular, schools. regular public yeah.
1: schools. In fact, um, we visited uh, McKinney High School, which is a little bit north of the Dallas area, after the symposium was over. And there was a, a class there that had made an RV twelve aircraft, and they were starting on a second one. They also had a Cessna one hundred and fifty they were taking apart and putting back together. Cool. And this is just a regular high school, you know, typical high school, and the students were very engaged, and uh, you know, it's kind of like they wanted to be in class. Hmm. versus, oh, man, i got to go to school. Yeah. I don't want to. Because, you know, it could go that way. Yeah, absolutely. But they were pretty psyched about being there, and cool. it was just very, very
0: forward-thinking. Cool. That's yeah, neat. So uh, some of those kids someday might help comply with ADs. The next thing we're going to talk about. <laughs> hey, good transition, <laughs> Ian. I love it. New AD just issued, um, actually proposed. Let me, let me make that clear. Proposed AD, talking about some inspection panels on wings of certain PA-28s and PA-32s. Now, this is something... Not on the Pipers, but something you have a little bit of knowledge about.
1: Right, right. Back when I was an AirCoop owner, um, there was a lot of discussion about putting some inspection panels into the lower... Areas of the wings on air coupes. and of course, Fred Wick was the designer of the air aircoop, and also the Piper Cherokee, the Hershey mm. bar wing. Yeah. So this is in essence to um, to open up some holes so that you can inspect and make sure there is no corrosion in okay. your wing spar. Yeah. And the wing spar being a very important part of your aircraft that you want to keep a good eye on. Yeah. And it doesn't look like it's all that costly. Now, anything with aviation, you know, it comes with an asterisk. But we're looking at probably about $170 or so for the inspection, you know, if it comes to pass. And then also about, what, a few more $100 than that, about $700 to actually cut the holes, get the parts, and put them in there.
0: Yeah, and the nice thing is this isn't one of these, like, if it happens, you know, if this AD passes that you've got to, like— Shut down, you know, run over to the mechanic and have them do it right away. You've got, right. I think it's the next hundred hours or year in service. That's really
1: good. That's so helpful it's something, for aircraft owners. Yeah, yeah,
0: something they could do during the annual theoretically.
1: Right, and then um, when I was an air coupe owner, there was a lot of there was a lot of debate about well. You know, should we do this? Should we not? That kind of thing. Well, I mean, of course, for me, it was a no-brainer, but I had fabric wings. But nonetheless, the panels were little metal pieces, but they just clipped in, Ian. It wasn't that big of a deal. Okay. It, just, it was real simple. And, you know, it was still airtight, watertight. It was no problem. So yeah. this is on Gave the other side. Yeah, give you a piece of mind. Yeah. yeah.
0: So we're, um, AOPA is, is looking for comments from Piper owners who might be affected by this. So definitely go onto the website, AOPA.org. Go under News. And um, check out this story. Um, you can just Google Wingspar AD, Piper Single. The story will come up. And uh, we're soliciting feedback because we want to know from owners, will this impact you? Right. Do you support? Do you not support? And uh, and that will help us generate comments to the FAA.
1: Exactly. And then they'll
0: use that information and they might tweak
1: the recommendations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, PA-28s, uh, that design's been around for a while. It is still going strong, as we heard in these new gamma numbers. Piper is killing it. They did really well. with This
1: is basically the General Aviation Manufacturers Association puts out a quarterly report on how many aircraft were sold, how much money they sold, you know, sold for broad, basically brought into the industry. And uh, the Piper PA twenty eight, basically the Archer three, yeah, twenty two. Those guys uh, went out, went flying out the factory in Vero Beach, yeah, in the uh, third quarter. And Piper did pretty strong all across the board. They sold uh, forty two aircraft in this quarter, that brings them up to about ninety nine for the year. And we're talking about a piston aircraft that looked pretty strong to me. And on the other side of the coin, the mall air folks from Georgia, which is where, you know, I'm from, mm-hmm. they have zero so far. Yeah.
0: And but, it looks like I don't even know if they're still reporting because of the, the I don't know if you notice on the report, the second and third quarters, there's nothing. There's not even a zero. So, oh, you're right. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with them. That's well, I know that they're sign. still supporting those aircraft oh, yeah.
1: and there are a ton of them in the field.
0: Yeah. So overall, Gamma numbers looked really good, some really healthy stuff. I don't know, just uh, tell me a couple of your top highlights.
1: Okay, well, what I was looking at across the board was that I just did some quick mathematics, and of course, you know, math might not be my strong suit, but (laughs) (laughs) nonetheless, it looked like for piston airplanes, and I'm talking about the number of aircraft that were sold in the third quarter. Mm -hmm. It looks like it went up by 28 individual aircraft. Mm. And um, and, and it went up by six individual business jets. And, but down by minus eight turboprops. In other words, there are eight less this year versus last year so far. And across the board, rotorcraft looked pretty strong to me and particularly the Robinson line.
0: Yeah, they were doing pretty well. Robinson, I was just looking at that. Um, it's interesting because if you, if you know a little bit about how their stuff breaks down, it's like the R22 training helicopter, R44, generally personal transport, R66 working helicopter. I mean, that's obviously a kind of a rough guideline, but it, it, it gives you a, a starting point. Um, they are 22 down. Uh, they were only at five shipments this quarter from nine the previous and 11 the first quarter. So that might say mm, the training industry is sort of adapting to where things were a couple of months ago. But interestingly, the 44 is
1: up. Off the chart. Up. Yeah,
0: doing really well. So private helicopters or I suppose that could be some um, working companies downsizing a little bit.
1: Well, that could be. That's yeah. a good point. But also I noticed that um, and I, and I flew an R44 recently as well. And um, I know a lot of pilots actually just prefer a lot of helicopter pilots prefer a little bit bigger ship.
0: Yeah, sure. But
1: yeah. I, I I like that R22. In fact, I'm gonna take a few more helicopter lessons come December. Oh, right. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, but interestingly, the 66 way down. Uh, they did 21 first quarter, 24 second quarter, 12 that third quarter. So that's about half. Yeah. So that's interesting. Now,
1: yeah. w- now if you look across uh, up at the Bell line, yeah, the 407 is that? That's not the Long Ranger, is it? What what is? that i'm not trying to put no no the
0: long ranger i think is that 206 l4 well the 407 407 is their big guy
1: well 15 of those
0: yeah so they're doing well with that so that's pretty good numbers for that yeah they're starting to churn out the 505s that's the new jet ranger um five of them this quarter so that's good um they've been a little slow coming but uh but there they are so
1: now what about airbus helicopters Are those those kind of big sexy looking things so (laughs) airbus
0: Oh, Do they man. Buy don't a get bunch me started. Of companies yeah, it's like worst, worst branding ever on a helicopter. I mean, Airbu- who wants to fly an Airbus helicopter? <laughs> what kind of helicopter is an Airbus? Yeah, yeah it's okay. like I don't know. So, uh, Dolphins, for example. Okay. Cool name, right? Dolphins, yeah. like yeah, that, that's so now that's an Airbus helicopter. Eurocopter. I see Eurocopter. All, I know all those. And the, um, the
1: Dolphins are the ones the Coast Guard uses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. A
0: Stars, all those are okay. now Airbus helicopter. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, the I noticed the 145. They there are 19 of those yeah. that were sold in this quarter. That's pretty good, and basically 67. Uh, of the Airbus brand this quarter.
0: Yeah, their billings were down a little bit, and and I guess total uh, deliveries, but up from the first quarter. So. Bit of a bit of a mixed bag there. The one speaking of helicopters now, because we've lost all the fixed-wing people. They're they're you know <laughs> they've turned off because they're like who cares. This one's a bit of a sleeper, um, and I'm excited to fly one of these soon. This is the the Cabri G2 from uh, Gimbal. This is a uh, a helicopter company out of France uh-huh. with a former Eurocopter. Engineer who built it. Oh, really? Um, yeah, they've had 26 deliveries so far this year. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's that pretty is good. strong. Yeah.
1: So we're seeing some strong numbers in helicopters. We're seeing some strong numbers in fixed wing. We talked a little bit about about the four person aircraft. Diamond also the DA40 bringing back our fixed wing folks. Yeah. They've uh, they've, <laughs> they've they've, they've <laughs> sold helicopter people. You can go to the
0: bed now. Yeah. Right.
1: They sold 22 of those, which I think to me says that there's a pretty strong training market. But you know, Cirrus is still at the head of the pack here oh, yeah. with yeah. 90 total aircraft sold in the third quarter. Yeah. That's pretty good numbers, Ian, I think,
0: across the board. In fact, if you look at the Cirrus numbers quarter to quarter, it's very consistent. Um, First quarter, they were a little soft. You know, 94 last quarter, 94 this quarter. The SR-22Ts, for example, Uh 50 last quarter, 41 this quarter. The SR twenty 30 last quarter thirty two this quarter so that man they're they're a machine it's like uh, they're starting to be able to book that pretty, sort of regular pretty stable business. yeah and
1: another stable brand on the, on the higher end are the Gulfstreams yeah and I noticed that for the first second and third quarter they've sold thirty aircraft in each of those three quarters and those are very very expensive aircraft
0: oh yeah and that's actually surprising because they you know they've said um, and if, if you look the billings are down ever so slightly you know they're saying in bizjets that it's like Things are starting to that the billings are coming down and that uh people are going more like mid-size, uh kind of small. But uh Gulfstream, it's like they're they're not looking too bad, I gotta say.
1: I think if you're a successful business person or or entertainment person, that that's what you aspire to fly. Oh then. yeah, man. So, Gulfstream is yeah. oh man. And the government has a few of them too. Yeah,
0: they do, but it's like that is it's uh, you know, not to say anything bad about um, you know, the folks at Bombardier or anything else, but it's like, man, a G six fifty, it's like that's where it's at.
1: Well, Cessna Textron sold 13 of the latitudes. So yeah. that's, a, that's a pretty nice business jet, too. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so let's talk about ICON for a second.
1: Right. And we you want to talk about their billing numbers. Yeah. I mean, how many aircraft they sold.
0: Yeah. So they are starting to, uh, well, it's hard to see from the report. It says they're delivering. Now, we know that some of those deliveries went straight back to leasebacks for their flight schools. Right. But um, well, they've so they've had far, eight total eight all together on the year,
1: yeah, and four this quarter, yeah. And I th- want to say that there were there was two in the first quarter and two in the second quarter.
0: Yep. Yeah. So one of those four, uh, um, one of those four, well, yeah. it? Was, we got to talk about this. It was involved in a, a
1: terrible crash, a very high profile crash with Roy Halladay, a baseball player, a retired pitcher, yeah, who a lot of people really admired. Um, because of his, uh, work ethics on the mound. And also he was a very robust pilot really. And, and you know, he, he wasn't just inexperienced. He was inexperienced in the icon, yeah. but he had a number of hours.
0: Yeah. He, um, he came from a flying family. I guess his dad was a corporate pilot. I correct. Think. That's correct, man. One of the things that gets me about this crash is like, have you seen the video that icon put out with his wife? I didn't see that video, yeah. but I
1: did see the bystanders videoing the stuff on the ground. And I read about the the fact that his wife was a little reluctant at the beginning, but she knew that it was his dream to one day, you know, fly this LSA seaplane.
0: Yeah, they um in fact they did a video for Icon. Right. Um where she said, I you know, Fought him all the whole way. And he said, Yeah, she really fought me hard on this. And then she went for a flight at their Tampa Flight Center. And, and it was cool, right? Loved it yeah. and was like, Okay, I get it. I get why he loves this. Yeah. Kind of gave me the okay. And then it's like weeks later.
1: Something that you and I both have a little experience with, you more than I, but getting that seaplane rating for me taught me a lot about respect for the aircraft. Yeah. And keeping your head on a swivel and always looking outside. And I guess either that or I was just a wuss, but I never did any heavy-duty maneuvers, <laughs> you know, low to, low to the deck like that, Yeah, and I, and, and I did view the the bystander video, and of course, we're going to wait to see what happens mm-hmm. in the NTSB report.
0: Yeah, but regardless, I mean, it's like, and, and yeah, okay, we will definitely wait for the final report, because who knows? But let's just talk about what we do know, which is there's a video. There is, and um, that, that
1: pretty much everyone has seen. Yeah,
0: and there was some low altitude maneuvering.
1: It, it certainly appeared that way, and it certainly appeared closer to the deck than 300 feet. Yeah.
0: So now I want to their first accident. This is Icon's second fatal accident, right? Already, That's correct. third total accident.
1: Well, the one before the one that got a lot of um, a lot of ink before was. It basically involved one of their designers. Yeah. And it was a bo- sort of a box canyon on a lake. Yeah. And it was a little bit hard to maneuver out of that area. Low altitude. Right. Again. Yeah.
0: So you've seen their, um, their marketing videos. Right. I have. Yeah. You know that uh, a lot of their culture is military, where low altitude flight is... Um, the norm. The norm, but it's very rigorously trained. It is. They've, you know, marketed a lifestyle, which right. I can appreciate. Which we want more people to get yeah. involved in aviation. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, I think one of the differences, though, is they're, they're in many cases, marketing to non-pilots.
1: They are. They're um, marketing to folks who would also be on a jet ski. Yeah.
0: and uh, or and
1: four-wheeling or motorcycling.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to pretend that this is like, I don't, I'm not going to get on my high horse and be like, there, you know, it's like, you have to show safety at all times with aviation. And it's like, because... Whatever, there the internet's full of people with cla- crashed Lamborghinis and Ferraris and everything else, right? Yeah, just have to look. Do you have to look
1: much further past Fast and Furious? Yeah, and and one of their stars crashed a, a high performance car. Yeah, and he killed himself.
0: Yeah, but my question is, is Icon culpable? Do you think they're responsible in many cases for that type of flying behavior? Okay, right. so
1: um, and my opinion is that you know. Safety first, really, I guess, I was, I was always steeped in an aviation culture of safety and um, and coached by some of the better people in the business, one of them being my mentor, Dave Hirschman. And, uh, you know, I always went to the books, and I went ahead of time and just checked, checked things out, and I was real meticulous about it. I take probably longer to do a pre-flight than, than most other people. And, and a lot of people are that way. When I talked to Miss Vermont, she's a a pilot as well. And she said, she was real careful about that. What I'm leading up to is that I think if you start with this aviation safety and carefulness, then you will continue that way. If you're marketing to, Hey, uh, kick the tires, you know, light the fires, let's roll and go. You know, I I think it, you
0: sometimes there might be shortcuts involved. Yeah. So, it's interesting because you know Icon got a lot of blowback um, after that Box Canyon accident, right? And they put out some standards, right, to try and address this. So you you you've got these up here, and um, give us the lay of land on the altitude because I, I think this is fascinating.
1: All right, so I, I saw I went ahead and take uh, took a look at their uh, low altitude flying guidelines, and so you know they do mention that you're you're not supposed to fly. Um, basically, you need to fly above 500 feet. Uh, pretty much at all times. Mm-hmm. A sparsely populated open water, 500 feet away from any person, vessel, or vehicle. That's what the FAA has. Yeah. And that's the AIM tells you to do. But they do indicate in here that there is a soft deck, uh, normal, non-aerobatic maneuvering, where we're talking about plus or minus 60 degrees of bank, uh, and we're talking about this, this soft deck being oh, what, 300 feet. And that's kind of low to me.
0: So they're saying below 300 feet, you should be able to do maneuvering up to 60 degrees of bank and how many many degrees of pitch? 30
1: degrees? Plus or minus 30 degrees of pitch, which is pretty darn severe. Yeah. Uh, But now those aircraft have an angle of attack indicator built in. Yeah, yeah. That's a real help. It is a help. But then um, below the soft deck, and and we were just talking about this before the podcast, that um, you're supposed to have benign maneuvering, which is defined as plus or minus 45 degrees of bank. And plus or minus ten degrees of pitch. Okay. Now, ten de- plus or minus ten degrees of pitch, I can dig.
0: Oh, say okay. So below the three hundred feet, uh-huh. you're allowed to do. For, well, allowed. Th- their guidance is forty-five degrees of bank. Uh huh. Uh, and 10 degrees of pitch, right? but above the 300 feet. So at 300 feet, I'm right. allowed to go to 60 degrees. That's right. But I hit below 300 feet, I go back to 45. Right. Now, okay.
1: now, as an instructor, yeah, when you're teaching your students about 45 degrees of bank, when you're looking outside the aircraft, inside the aircraft, yeah. outside and inside, I mean, if you're not on your game, you could lose 100 feet, I think, pretty easy.
0: Oh, yeah. No question.
1: And and I was just mentioning this. I mean, what if you get in your aircraft and you, you set your altimeter wrong? And you're going by your altimeter, which yeah. you should be looking out anyway yeah. in a seaplane. And you've got a little bit of altimeter error there. And then now you've lost 150 feet. Then you're like 50 feet now above the ground, and the wings what 30 feet on each side. Yeah. Now you're talking. <laughs> yeah, total, you've got yeah. very little clearance left.
0: Yeah, I know. It's um, I think you know. It's like we talk. Everybody in aviation, they talk a lot about the marketing with Icon and a lot about sort of the general attitude and everything else. I wonder if like one of the fundamental issues is. The military culture because it's like in the military flying at 100 feet or whatever they fly at 50 feet 300 feet whatever it's like it's normal, no, quote unquote normal, but it's trained and they trained really have, heavily. But they have hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours. Yeah, and, and it's then, rigorous, uh, and the technology that's on board and everything else. Yeah, and we're yeah. talking
1: about pilots that are we're talking about pilots that are comfortable landing on an aircraft carrier. Yeah, you know? yeah, so. right.
0: And but versus Icon, where it's like in many cases they've just gotten a sport these, pilot certificate.
1: These are new, relatively new flyers. Yeah,
0: and uh, which we want to encourage more people to fly,
1: but yeah. in a safe manner. Yeah, and with a proper training. And uh, there aren't that many icon aircraft out there right now. There've yeah. already been two very high-profile uh, fatal crashes involved yeah. three people. Yeah. And I just got to tell you, Ian, that you know it just doesn't look good uh, from my perspective. I know.
0: Which you know what is a shame because it's like everybody you talk to who's flown the airplane <laughs> loves it. Yeah, loves it. It's they, like the product is totally there. They nailed it. Yeah, um, All the safety features they put in, the angle of attack, the stall-resistant wing, or spin-resistant, or whatever you want to call it, it's all great. Right. So it's like, man, if the worst happens and they go belly up, I think somebody will pick up the assets and make a heck of a good airplane out of it.
1: Well, that'd be interesting. I'm a little concerned, uh, even before the crash, I was a little concerned about the fact that... Um, ICON finally figured out how much it was really cost to make the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And the, the cost uh, it, going forward uh, was projected to be substantially higher than originally intended. Yeah. And then um, they went ahead and stripped off um, items that were already standard standard items to make the aircraft less expensive to entice other folks to buy it. Yeah. So I think that that is, that there's an issue there Yeah. that, um, a, it costs more to make than we thought it would. Mm-hmm. And then if all, all of a sudden you're starting to take, you know, st- pretty significant items off the aircraft. Like, I think the wheels were going to come off so that you could, it basically was a straight float plane, yeah, right, which is right. fine. Yeah, for some people, sure. Yeah. Sure. But then uh, other things, you know, the panel is going to be a little bit different, you mm-hmm. know, and I think, aren't the wings removable? And then I think they're going to make. Yeah, it depends make, on the configuration or yeah, foldable. Yeah. Right. And make, yeah. make that a, a, a sort of an option. I think that it's, you know, it's, I like the reality check. I yeah. think that's good. Yeah. But I think it definitely is pricing it out of the market for folks who have that kind of money to spend yeah. that want to just do it recreationally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's tough. Okay. All right. Let's let's move on to happier stuff. You're um, much happier. It, we're recording this. It's it's Thanksgiving's coming up. We did this last year. Right, we did. So uh, let's do again. We're going to talk about uh, what we're thankful for in the world of aviation.
1: Right. And I was going to just let our um, podcast listeners know they know I'm from Atlanta. And so this idea came from Furman Bisher, a longtime sports uh, columnist and sports editor who used to have a, a yearly – what I'm thankful for, column. Cool. So, Let's hear right. it. What are you thankful for, right. David? Well, I'm gonna. We'll go back and forth. Uh, so all right. the first thing I'm thankful for is the double latte with an extra <laughs> shot of espresso <laughs> that I got going right now.
0: Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we yeah, were man. at the coffee machine. It's like I, I'm surprised <laughs> you're still sitting upright and not, you know, your heart hasn't exploded from the <laughs> caffeine <laughs> influx. <laughs> I like that. Um, okay. I, uh, I I recently got helicopter current. Yeah. I am thankful for the R22. I just think. I, oh, man, if you have not flown a helicopter, you just got to just go get the intro flight um, because it is just a ball of fun. And, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a guy and he said and he's like, my wife told me she's going to do it for me. and I told her no, because I knew as soon as I tried it that I would just go obsessed with it and yeah. have to do it all. But it's like, go do it. It is fun. And uh, so I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Right I think
1: now. that makes you a better pilot, too. Um, now I'm really thankful for the total solar eclipse, and I'll tell you why. It brought thousands of aviators and non-aviators together on one day, and I'd like to see that happen again.
0: Awesome! You know, I heard. A, I'm not going to like go on long on every one of these. <laughs> but right. I promise. But I That's heard a great right. story about that, which is that um, a friend was talking to uh, a friend was talking to her friend, and um, they had been near an airport, didn't even know the airport was there. And when the eclipse happened, they heard cheering. And it turns out it was from the airport because so many people had gathered at the airport to see the eclipse. It was a perfect place to go. Yeah. So that's that's very cool. Right. Um, I am thankful for students. Uh, I got some time to instruct this year and um, had a great time with it. And recently... Got Donnie McKay current. He works on our uh, Rusty Pilot program yeah. the OPA. He was a Rusty Pilot. He was. So I, I say he was not only a coordinator, he was also a client. Um, yeah, he was. 30 he was years almost out of the cockpit.
1: That's amazing, and man. And,
0: man, he nailed it. He did a great job. I had such a ball. He was just a really gracious guy very studious, had a great time. And uh, man, that makes you feel so good as an instructor. So. I'm sure
1: it does. And uh, and we were all grading him on his landing there. And then yeah. we we're all waiting to greet him. And then he taxied over to the fuel pumps and yeah. we're going, what are they doing? Yeah. This so this is a, it's a great there.
0: example. He wanted, he had never fueled an airplane. And so he wanted to, he, he quit with 150 hours back 30 years ago. Okay, uh, He wanted to learn how to fuel an airplane. So it's like, we did. It It was great. I think that's good. It's a it's a lesson for
1: other rusty pilots out there. And, and don't forget, we have great rusty pilot programs to get folks back in the air. Yeah. I am also thankful for my night currency that I that I did uh, just about a week and a half ago because that teaches you a lot about aviation and the seat of your pants. So I'm grateful for night currency, especially since the time just changed.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am thankful for clouds. I had a couple of great IFR flights the past couple of months. Just those perfect like you know you're totally in the soup on the arrival you intercept the final approach course start to come down you know the airport's there but it's like you can't see anything and you break out and it's like the the magic works That's and awesome. it just it still blows me away that you can navigate completely blind come down below the clouds and magically there's a runway in front of you. So good times.
1: Well, on the other side of the extreme, I'm going to say I'm thankful for the few helicopters I had over here at Advanced Helicopters. And I've got a few more I'm going to try to do in December. So nice. I'm going to get back an R-22 myself.
0: Oh, fantastic. Love that. What else? I, I think the final thing is um, I'm just, I, I've been, I've had a great time uh, mentoring a few kids, um, hosting. Uh, my, my son's uh, class came out and we did like a field trip this year. So I'm going to say kids who still get excited about flying. I'm very thankful for that. Lots of cool questions. We had to... Local balloonist brought his basket. We got to light off the burner and just had a ball. And so, um, yeah, kids, kids who still love airplanes.
1: Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up with one more on that. Um, besides thanking the many volunteers who helped out during the hurricanes uh, that we had here in the States, they volunteered their airplanes and their time and resources. But I actually would like to thank the high school and college aviators that I've spoken to throughout the year and that have attended some of our events because they are passing on that passion for aviation to the next generation. And so, following up on on your thankfulness for the for the uh, students, I'm gonna
0: I'm gonna you know double down on that myself. Awesome. Hey, so somebody who I know is passionate about giving back is Jamie, our guest. Um now you met her, right? I did. I met her at the award ceremony. Um, just a, a very like Zoanne that we heard from last time. Right. Uh, just very dynamic and excited. Jamie was really overcome when when it was announced that she had won, and just a little bit started to get into uh, when we talked to her afterwards some of the challenges she faced to get to that point and then uh, you called her up and, and heard all about it.
1: Yeah, Jamie was great on the on the Skype call. Jamie Patterson Sims of Sky Trek Alaska Flight Training which was the flight school of the year basically and she tells us all about how she had to pursue her aviation career and she had some some hurdles to overcome and we're going to hear about those hurdles and how she made a success out of it. All right, we're going to welcome to our Hangar Talk podcast via Skype, Jamie Patterson-Sims the AOPA Flight Excellence Award-winning flight school from SkyTrek, Alaska Flight Training. Jamie, welcome to AOPA's Hangar Talk podcast.
2: Thanks, David. It's good to be with you.
1: Well, we're glad you're here. Congratulations, first of all, on winning that award. I know that kind of came as a surprise. We were talking a little bit uh, off audio on that, but uh, congratulations, and I uh, hope that this year will be another great year for you.
2: Thank you. It's a great honor, and I just uh, love working with my students. They're just uh, amazing individuals, and it's just so much fun to uh, see the joy and excitement when they're training. It's just a fun experience for everybody.
1: Outstanding. Well, look, let's uh, let our podcast listeners know exactly where you're located in Alaska. Go ahead and, and give us the details. And we'll also remind them that they could find you at SkyTrekAlaska.com.
2: Yes, yes. Um, I'm located uh, in Anchorage, Alaska at Merrill Field. And the uh, field was born back in 1931. And it's just a really fun place to train. We have uh, it's class Delta airspace. And it's sandwiched um, between The second busiest cargo airport in the nation and the fifth busiest in the world, which is Anchorage International Airport. Then we have um, the busiest seaplane base in the world and right next to Elmendorf Air Force Base with their F 22. So we do have special Part 93 special airspace rules here in Anchorage. And so it makes it real fun and challenging to fly here, right next to mountains, too.
1: You know, I've been to Anchorage one time way back when I was a photojournalist in Atlanta, and then we—I went to Anchorage, and I definitely remember it because the seaplane runway area, if you will, is basically adjacent to the airport. Correct?
2: Yes, yes, it's right next to it. Um, we have uh, Lake Hood Airport as borders Anchorage International, and so they share um, a border. And they're um, the airport traffic tower. Actually, they have. One person facing Anchorage International, controlling all the big heavies, and on the other side of the tower, they have one tower controller that faces um, Lake Hood Airport and controls that class Delta surface area over there. So it's a uh, pretty busy. It's a pretty busy airspace.
1: Well, that's a and it's an incredible place to uh, to fly and to learn to fly. But now you and I started our conversation earlier because I was asking you about some key tips to night flying uh in the alaska area and you sent me a whole bunch uh via email which i appreciate and they were just outstanding but since then i I spoke to some other folks here and i looked into a little bit more about um your award and i found out that you are very key in helping promote women in aviation so i wondered would you mind if we called an audible and we talked a little bit about women in aviation
2: oh that would be fine that would be uh just fine i it's one of my passions is getting more women involved in aviation and flying. I really have a great connection with women who want to learn how to fly.
1: Well tell me a little bit about your background. I know that you had some challenges uh, in aviation uh, starting out so just go ahead and uh, you know close your eyes and think back back then and uh, tell me a little bit about what it was like to begin your flying career and 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 you know we can kind of transition into you know how things are today starting out um, how you got going and then were you encouraged were you not encouraged you know how did that how did that happen
2: okay well it was something that I always wanted to do since I was a very very small child and so my first experience was um, in the Civil Air Patrol back I went to solo encampment back in uh, 1983 and I saved up the entire summer to go for my 10 days and learn how to fly an airplane, got ground school, went, it was room and board and all my meals, all the flying I could get in until we soloed, and it was $200. So um, I, fall, summer, and I did that in August of uh, 1983, and then I eventually made my way to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And went there and got my ratings and graduated from there in 1992. So it was it was really difficult. Um, there was a lot of barriers. They weren't very helpful. Um, I did not come from a background of flying. Um, I didn't have an aviation background. No one in my family had flown before, and so I didn't have that connection that a lot of the other guys at the school had, and so I wish I had had a mentor or someone to help me with the process of what do I do next? What do I do with this rating? How can I get ahead? And there wasn't that type of... Um,
1: Aviation coach, if you will, some, something that could help lead you by the hand.
2: Right. There wasn't a coach or a mentor or somebody to help me through or tell me, you know, this is, if you do this next, then it'll get you to your next spot. And it just seemed like I was almost... Stymied, or there were barriers at every um, at every level, and so I'm pretty adventurous. And um, in 1995, I, after banging my head against a wall and working at Walmart, for there was uh, 13 of us flight instructors in 1992 and 1993 working at Walmart in Prescott, Arizona. Oh my! And uh, yes, it was the really it was a very low low point of of hiring pilots um, in the United States.
1: Because of, uh, of economic circumstances as well, back in the mid-90s.
2: Right, right. And so, you know, it was um, very difficult to get any flying job back then. And so I came up, I bought a one-way ticket on April Fool's Day of 1995 and made my way to Anchorage, Alaska with one duffel bag. And I knew that there were jobs up here. And so I i beat in the bushes and I stayed at the youth hostel downtown and I got a job flight instructing in Anchorage and it was fantastic. The flying up here was just amazing and people were very nice. They were outgoing. I was new to the block and so people were um, very, they were trying to be really helpful up here and it, it was really good flight instructing. I really enjoyed it and then I decided that I wanted to get a little bit more experience, actually, you know, some PIC, left seat PIC instead of right seat PIC, and I headed mm-hmm. out headed out to Bethel, Alaska.
1: Now, where is that? That's like, what, four or 500 miles, what, west or north?
2: Right. It's about 400 miles west of Anchorage, and it's only accessible by aircraft, and so, It's about the size of Oregon. It's about 58 villages out there. And it's one of the, I think it's the second busiest airport in the state of Alaska. And so it's a hub for all those 58 villages. And so we have to fly supplies and people and cargo and coffins um, out to uh, these different villages. And it's uh, actually larger than the state of Oregon, the territory out there. And so you're flying all day long.
1: That's huge. That's a, that is a vast amount of space. Oh,
2: it's massive out there. And you go all day long, and we um, did it by the minute. We would fly up to 480 minutes per day. So that was eight hours. And, you know, usually you'd time out. My logbook lists 20 to 30 landings per day out there. So we would just go, go, go all day long. And I was getting about 140 hours a month out there, which was a little crazy. So you can see how much flying we did. There was about 140, 150 pilots out there, and there were two women.
1: Aha. So the the ratio is pretty slim. And that that really, uh, I don't mean to stop you in the middle of this, but gosh darn, that really speaks to kind of the ratio that one might find, you know, elsewhere. Really?
2: Right. It was it, it was uh, very trying out there. I, I had a job, my second job out there. The person who was going to hire me, um, we spoke on Tuesday about um, an interview. We were going um, we spoke on the phone, and we were going um, I was gonna go and see him um, two days from then um, on Thursday. So on Tuesday we spoke, and um, he was the chief, um, one of the chief pilots at the company that he wanted me to work at. And um, the next day he was killed in an aircraft accident.
1: Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry to hear that. And well, that must have derailed you. It had to have derailed your plans.
2: No. Actually, there were so many. At that point in time, there were so many people dying out there. It was There were so many pilots who were dying out there. It was one of the um, most dangerous places to fly you know, in the world. And I'd have nachos one night with one guy, and he would be – wouldn't be there the next day. I would talk to somebody on the phone one day. And so the problem was is that they eventually did end up hiring me. So what happened in that case was that they took the pilot who had died and they um, put a line through his name and wrote my name on the schedule about his name.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: And I took over his schedule. And they also scratched out his name on, the, on his company mailbox and put my name over the top of it. And I can assure you that being the first female pilot at this particular base for this company and going into the exact same schedule as this particular gentleman who had passed on was not a good start.
1: No, because I'm sure he was uh, likely well established, and he had a network of friends. Yeah.
2: Yes, yeah, he was a beloved person. He had worked there for nine and a half years, and so he was one of the most senior pilots. And to have me take over his spot was was what well, was awful. <laughs> So um, it didn't. It didn't go well. Uh, it didn't go well for me. Um, I think one of the final straws was when um, I refused to take um, 12 sled dogs untethered in the back of an airplane um, without crates, without kennels, and without a handler. Um, I refused to take them without them being tied down or secured somehow in the aircraft because I was afraid one of them would be in heat and they would all ball up in the back of the airplane and upset the CG and um, they decided, we mutually decided it probably wasn't a good idea for me to continue my employment with this particular company. Yeah, I um, can
1: imagine. It started out bad, and it went. <laughs> it got worse is, is what really oh, it happened just,
2: it just went downhill. Um, but, yes, I, I would say that I think that women in aviation, I think that the most important thing is just to keep going. Some of the um, best times I've had are, Um, talking with other pilots and helping them through difficult times and encouraging them when they get down. Because flying aircraft is just so empowering. It is such a beautiful, majestic, um, strong, and powerful thing to do. And I encourage women to get to that spot, to keep on going. Sometimes those jobs or those positions will be so hard that you just can't see to keep going on but if you do you can eventually get there and um, both my sister my sister flies the Airbus for FedEx and she used to be a Navy pilot and she said she went through some horrible things in the Navy when she was there and now she just really enjoys her job but going through those hard difficult times and going through to the other side and making it through are uh, really just really, um, creates strength. I think, um, really makes you stronger, you know? So
1: those are some fascinating stories, but now give it like, what would be, what would be a good professional tip for someone that is a female that is just starting out? I mean, would you recommend some type of mentorship and, and, and not to, not to steer you in that direction, but we do have uh, women in Aviation, uh, that organization, Women in Aviation International, I should say, and other organizations, or, or are you um, available to mentor folks?
2: Yes, I um, am a member of the 99s. I am also a member of the Women in Aviation International group. Um, I was one of the very first, um, I was at the very first meeting in 1990 in Prescott, Arizona.
0: Oh, man, that's um, cool.
2: The, I, right. <laughs> and so I was there. um and it was just a it was a great and um, powerful uh, experience to be with all these women. I couldn't believe I was actually with other female aviators. It was just um, it, it was a great to know that there were other people out there like that. I do mentor a lot of women in here in Anchorage. I um, am it, you know it's always great to for when uh, new women pilots um, come up to me and they're saying, jamie, how can?" You know, how can I? What's my next step? How can I get there? This is what I want to do. This is my ultimate goal. You know, can you help me get there? What can I do to get there? It's, it's always so gratifying to be able to come up and um, have them come back to me years later and say, "Hey, I took your advice, and this is where I am now." And it's, it's a great feeling to be able to, be able to help them um, achieve their goals.
1: So you started. So you helped. Basically, you helped found. Uh, it sounds like the uh, Women in Aviation International.
2: No, it was actually it was it was actually founded in 1990, um, and the, mm-hmm. and in 1990 it was founded the Women in Aviation International in Prescott, Arizona, at the Sheraton Hotel. And I was um, I was at the first meeting. There was only it was actually I have a picture of myself with Bobby Trout, who was Amelia Earhart's friend. And so she came to the meeting, there was um just probably maybe a handful of women there. Um, doctor Peggy Beatty, um she was the person who originally founded it, um, back then when she was worked at Embry Riddle in Prescott, Arizona. And, um, apparently it's obviously grown from there.
1: Well, yeah. And they offer many, many scholarships for women, um, especially, and I'm going to just go, drop the website. It's WAI.org org for folks who are interested.
2: Yes. Yes. It is a great organization and, um, they have wonderful conferences throughout the year that you can attend their their largest one of course is in March um, every year and this year um in 2018 it will be in Reno Nevada awesome but it's always yes and it will be um, but i always see people who i haven't seen for years uh who who are there sometimes i'll catch up with people who you know i haven't seen in 15 or 20 years and you know they'll tell me what they're doing and it's just it's uh, great to see that it really it's, it's fantastic so
1: that's a great organization for folks who are just starting out in aviation um, females who want to get a, a, a handle on it and um, uh, WAI is, is a good spot to, to also check on for scholarships that i mentioned very briefly um, we're talking to each other now in um, late October, and one of the things for um, WAI, their scholarships, I believe you have to apply by mid-November, but they have just tons and tons of them available for folks who are just starting out in aviation as well as um, members who want to further their professional aviation careers.
2: Yes, I know, um, I know many women who have won those scholarships, and it's really advanced their careers Quite significantly. So, um, many of the, there's numerous aviators up here in Alaska actually who have um, won those scholarships and have really gone far with them.
1: Well, let me, let me take us backwards a step or two. Um, by the way, for our podcast listeners, uh, Jamie is super, super busy this time of the year and we appreciate you having a few minutes for us. When I initially contacted you, you said, I believe you're uh jam for about the next 12 to 14 days. So, um, I want to keep us on schedule and I don't want to keep your clients waiting, but I want to revisit one thing. You said you headed from, I guess, from Arizona to Anchorage with one duffel bag and, uh, Tell me a little bit about that. Now you were pretty, you know, you were young then. Uh, you were um, working at the Walmart in that during that general time period. I mean, that took a lot of guts. Tell me about that.
2: Well, I only had enough money. I was making um, the princely sum. Um, Walmart was paying the most amount of money in Prescott at that time. It was five dollars and twenty-five cents an hour um, instead of the usual five dollars. Um, I worked there for a year and a half, and after working there for a year, I had uh, three of the managers come into um, into the office. I at that point in time, it was transferred to the to the cash office where I counted all the um, all the earnings for the day. And they came in and they said, "Jamie, you've worked here for a year, and we've really appreciated all you've done, and so we're going to give you a raise of fifteen cents per hour."
1: Fantastic! I love it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so I immediately. Um, thought that's six dollars more per week Um, and so I decided (laughs) that
1: won't buy much aviation fuel at this point I don't think even back then nope
2: (laughs) nope and so at that point in time I decided to start making plans um, to move to Alaska and I had just enough money to cover a one-way ticket on um, a now defunct airline called Mark Air and I arrived up here in Anchorage and it was during the breakup which is the um, muddy Dusty season when all the snow was melting, and I thought it was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. And uh, I asked around at some of the flight schools, and they actually allowed me to sit in the back of a Cessna 172 with students to observe. And so I got to fly around, just looking out at the back seat of these of the airplane, and I just fell in love. And I knew that I had to get a job here, and so. I applied at one of the flight schools and within two days it had gone out of business. And so I had 14 students and at that point in time I took those 14 student folders and um, I copied them off and I went to the largest flight school in Alaska and I said, hi, I'm back here for the third time. I have 14 students. Now will you hire me? And sure enough, I got wow. hired. <laughs>
1: Well, you should have. You brought you brought a, you brought more than more than a dozen uh, students with you uh, under your wing there, so to speak. I think that's that's saying right. a
2: lot. Yeah, so um I took a bunch of those students and um gave some of the other students to some of the other flight instructors and I instructed there and I just I just really loved it. It was just really fun. I actually uh flight instructed in one of the airplanes in 1995 and 1996. And that airplane uh, that I instructed in at that flight school is now one of my flight school airplanes.
1: Is that the, the Cessna 150?
2: Yes, it's, it's a Cessna little 150, um, 66281, and it's uh, actually been women-owned women, women owned, um, for a uh, few decades now. And so I purchased it from the old flight school owner, and she had owned it, and so now now it's mine. That so it's fantastic. got good karma.
1: That is fantastic. Yeah. So, so that um, I mean, I know we're skipping a few steps, but that really uh, helped launch your uh, your flight instructing career. It sounds like. Um, I know you had the, the other steps uh, along the way. You told us a little bit about about visiting uh, was it, uh, Bethel all, all the way to the west.
2: And so after, after I left Bethel, Alaska, um, I uh, worked at the university doing their simulators and, um, you know, helping with the simulator in the simulator lab and at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And then um, I also was a tour pilot and charter pilot around Alaska calls it, Alaskans call it the mountain, but um, Denali or... Um, And I did tours around Denali, and I did charters all around the state, and uh, I just had a great time doing that. I did that for a few summers and had an excellent time doing uh, that. This is a beautiful, beautiful place to fly around. Um, Every time I, I go to the lower 48, I'm just... Amazed at the differences in flying between Alaska and the lower 48. It's just a, it's just a lot different.
1: It is, it is. And you, in fact, you illuminated a lot of those uh, when we were um, chatting a little bit about, about night flying, that uh, the flying is so different in Alaska than it is in the 48. Um, and you mentioned things like everything from uh, from radar coverage to to weather uh, were were definitely uh, issues and um, safety as well and and uh, safety of, you know of a pilot and also the, the aircraft and and uh, safety equipment. So plus density altitude and a, and a whole slew of other things that really have to get your attention in Alaska.
2: Right, right. And one of the things that we do um, just about night flying is that we. Uh, a lot of the aviators get their night flying in the morning
1: <laughs> you got to explain the, you got to explain that to to those of us in the lower forty eight
2: <laughs> um, so our night flying um, sometimes the sun doesn't rise until you know ten o'clock ten thirty. And so we can start night flying around, uh, you know, seven, seven thirty. We can do our cross country starting at, you know, seven thirty or eight o'clock in the morning, and do all our night landings at nine o'clock in the morning, and uh, call it a day. And we're we're done with our night um, before we even have to go to work. So, um, yes, yeah, so we can do all our stop and goes, and it's it's really fun. They, they've been really gracious over at Anchorage International and Class Charlie airspace that. Um, they'll uh, assist my students, I take my students over to do their stop and go over at Anchorage International between the heavies so that we can learn about wake turbulence and we can learn about, you know, how to fly at larger airports. So, um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great experience flying here in Alaska and having all this great airspace just in a small area
1: well that and the other thing that you mentioned and uh, you started out our conversation with you know talking a little bit about the beauty of Alaska and, um, and one thing you sent to me uh, via email was the fact that you can sometimes have the moonrise and, and sun uh, almost at the same time uh, you, tell me about right. that
2: <laughs> so when you're when it's late in the evening like um, you know two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning you can actually see the, we have five- and six-hour sunsets up here. And so what happens is that the sun and the moon will be on the horizon at the same time, and you can see them in the in the, your same field of vision at the same time. And it's first time I saw that, it was really eerie. But now it's just breathtakingly beautiful to see that. And so we have the gorgeous sunrise at long, long sunsets. Um, here in Anchorage in the summertime, and in the wintertime we get our Northern Lights, and so it's it's utterly fantastic flying with all these different um, in all these different time periods throughout the day and throughout the seasons, and it just makes it for a real kind of an adventurous type of flying and that you really every every flight that you take is different. It's just a just just
1: majestic i think well well, jamie it sounds like you're a very adventurous uh person yourself and it sounds like you really did not let very many things stand in your way so uh kudos to you um i'm gonna uh take it take it back to um a little bit of the mentorship and a little a little bit more about uh, women in aviation before we close um this issue of Hangar talk via skype but um so We've got uh, more opportunities, I think now for pilots in general because Boeing has released their 20 year jobs outlook back in July and looking at 640 some odd thousand potential pilots and almost an equivalent amount of of uh, aviation mechanics as well as uh, flight attendant crews. So um, for for folks in general, do you think that aviation, uh is uh you know careers in aviation rather are are better worse or about the same as when you started
2: oh goodness gracious the opportunities now are just um incredible they're exploding um if i could have uh (laughs) gone forward in time and got and uh graduated um at this point in time i would be so much farther ahead than um i was that i am but um I the, the opportunities available for um, women and men, of course, are just fantastic. The aviation industry is just booming right now, and I am so excited to see where this is going to lead in the next few years. It's just, it's just uh, some great opportunities for people to... Um, start their flying now, um, continue it. Uh, any rusty pilots out there who want to continue their flying should should definitely hop on the bandwagon. I've got some people um, who, you know, have come out of the woodwork in their 40s and 50s and have decided, I'm going to go work for the airlines, and they're doing it. And so I think it's a, some fantastic opportunities for people who, um, used to fly, and uh, you know, gave it up because of the economic reasons. And I think that it's a great opportunity for younger people who want to get into it. And obviously, I believe it's a wonderful uh, field, career field for women too.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with you on on all those counts. Um, well, I'm going to ask you one or two more questions. So I know, like I said, I know our time's limited. But um, what about, uh, you know, folks that are in high middle school and high school that might want to pursue science, technology, engineering and math? Do you think that would help at all for folks who end up with an uh, aerospace or aviation career?
2: Uh, yes, I believe that um, a lot of the high schoolers there, um, it would be a great opportunity for them to, um, you know, to start there, uh, especially the younger ones, you know, the, the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th graders, 12th graders. I um, have numerous students at my school now who are, they are already licensed pilots. They got their licenses when they were 17, and they're starting on their instrument rating when they're in high school. And so I believe that them getting ahead like that is, um, you know, offers some fantastic um, growth for their career starting out so early. So they can, you know, become captain before they're, you know, when they get their ATPs. So, um, yeah, there's, um, up here in Alaska, there's a little bit uh, different scenarios. Mm, There's not very many flight instructors up here. And so uh, it's difficult to, you know, uh, nobody's getting their flight instructor ratings anymore because the opportunities, um, most of the cargo companies will hire you at 250 hours. And so... Um, there's not a lot of people getting their flight instructor ratings because you know it's another topic but um, they're getting they they're, get they're getting
1: hired out by the um, by the regional carriers and then the, and jumping right off to the major carriers with these pathway programs right. that a lot have uh, introduced as well as there have been uh, it's, al- it's almost like football players there's like signing bonuses and such now
2: right there's not even um yeah there's not even um, they don't even they don't even Get their flight instructor ratings. They just um, it's 250 hours, and they can get hired with one of the Part 135 cargo carriers here in Alaska, in Anchorage, and so there's numerous people. You know, it, when I was um, back in the 90s, um, you know, most people got their flight instructor ratings to build time, which actually wasn't that great of a thing to do because a lot of people should not be flight instructing. There's a lot of people. A that, lot of
1: people can fly. A lot of people can fly and, and a lot of people um, can teach and, and it's hard to be a good pilot and a good teacher at the same time. I think that's where you're going.
2: Exactly. Exactly. That's those are, that's exactly what I was going to say. So <laughs> definitely. Definitely.
1: So, um, but it sounds like there are there are still good opportunities for flight instruction uh, in Alaska. So, for podcast listeners, you know, take note of that. Although we don't want too many to come up that way, Jamie, because we want you to still do well at Skytrek Alaska. But it does sound like <laughs> it does sound like there are opportunities that abound uh, in Alaska and and the beautiful scenery, although uh, very challenging conditions, as you mentioned. Um, but it sounds like overall it's just a beautiful place to live and work and, uh, and be involved with and also uh, be close to nature up there as well.
2: Yes, yes. I'm um, very lucky to be flying up here. It's just a, a wonderful place to fly. Um, I'm very, very lucky to be able to do this every day and work with awesome students.
1: Well, it was awesome of you to join us for this uh, issue of Hangar Talk, Jamie, and um, I know we spent a little bit more time than we had planned um, on the call, but it was great to hear a little bit more about how you got started in aviation and your encouragement for females that are interested in aviation. You gave us some great tips uh, about joining the 99s or the uh, WAIs, and uh, we really appreciate that. So um, thank you very, very much for joining us, and we hope to talk to you very soon.
2: Awesome, David. It was wonderful talking with you, too. Have a great day.
1: All right, thank you again, and congratulations to Jamie Patterson Sims for that Excellence in Flight Training Award. Thanks.
2: Thank you, David.
0: David, yeah, great great job on that. I'm so impressed by people who persist in aviation. It's like, you know, I, I people in my family flew, and so the path was easier for me, I think, because they had been there and they encouraged me. But right. um, for people who come from no aviation background and just – just persist over and over again despite the odds. It's, it's very inspiring. She
1: hit it out of the park, Ian, I must say, and it's very inspiring to to me and to her students as well. Yeah, awesome. So we thank Jamie for her Skype interview.
0: All right, I think that's all the time we have for this week uh, on Hangar Talk. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hanson.
1: And I'm David Tulis. Look, you can find us at aopa.org slash Talk. We're on iTunes and on the Sporties Takeoff app.
0: All right, we'll see you next
1: time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.